I remember sitting at uh, the kitchen table, and we had a little um, kind of countertop TV. It was black and white, actually. It wasn't even color. And I remember uh, just eating my cereal before school, and the words came across the screen, and the, the commentator said over and over, the wall is down, the wall is down, the wall has fallen. And I, I said to my mom and dad, what wall? What are they talking about? And they said, the Berlin Wall. It's fallen. You guys remember, who remembers vividly when the wall fell down? Yeah, and all the celebration that, that ensued. I mean, it was a monumental achievement. Finally, this great big wall that separated East and West Berlin, capitalism, um, freedom from socialism, communism, and, and really uh, just a, a constant living prison, it was no more. It was done. It was over. And really, that ushered in, for all intents and purposes, the fall of the Soviet Union. And it was a huge celebration around the world. I mean, it was a monumental day. And, and no matter where you were, if you were alive and, and at the point of being able to remember that, you're going to remember what you were doing, where you were when that happened. Um, it was just one of those things that will stand forever in history. And as significant as that was, that that separation ended, that division was over, uh, the isolation was no more. As great as that was for those people in Berlin, the reality is that it took a while for people to understand that they could be unified again. It took a while for the people to even understand what unity really was all about and what it included and what it involved and how they were going to live that out because they had spent so much time isolated. They had spent so much time in division that the division had come to define them. And their, their division from one another and their separation from one another, that's all that they knew for most of them. That was what life looked like, segmented and separated. So it took them a long time to get acclimated to this whole new concept of unity and what that actually involved. And many people struggled for a very long time, no matter how powerful uh, it was that these walls came down. And after all kinds of attempts on their own and years of trying to dismantle the wall to no avail. I mean, nobody, no individual could do that. No small collection of people could take the wall down. It took power far beyond them, far above them, reaching beyond them. It took the powers of the world leaders to put pressure on the government to finally make it happen. And, and after all of that, unity is something that came with struggle and came over time, and it was something that they had to work at and grow into. That's very similar to how it is for us as believers. Because unity, true unity, and the kind of unity Jesus prayed for, all throughout his great prayer of John 17 that we've been in now for three weeks. That kind of unity, the unity that you see called for all throughout the Bible, the kind of unity you see on display in just powerful measure, none of that comes easy. None of that comes naturally to you and me. Naturally, humanly, we are prone toward disunity. Naturally, Our default is division. I mean, that's what we know. That's what we kind of go toward. 
And so the kind of unity that is called for for the Christian, it's going to have to be something beyond ourselves. And it's going to be something that we're going to struggle at. We're going to struggle in. We're going to struggle constantly to maintain the kind of unity we're called to. It's going to be something we have to work toward. It's going to be something we fight for. It's going to have to be something that we actually fight against in terms of the propensity uh, to go away from unity. We're going, to, we're going to constantly be fighting in this battle between self and others, between pursuing unity at all costs or retreating from that and just settling into what is normal for everyone, division and you do your thing and I do my thing and, and we'll just try not to get in each other's way. I mean, that's the human response and that's the mode of operation. And so we're going to constantly be struggling with this. And we're going to have times where we do really, really good at pursuing unity and we're, we're doing it and we're living it out and it's great. And then there's going to be times where we're just not doing very good at all and we revert back to that division. And so it's going to be this back and forth, this cycle, this struggle. And Jesus, of course, knew all about that. He knew that would be the case. He knew that would be our situation. He knew that's what we would experience. And that's why I believe he spent so much time praying so passionately, so powerfully, so clearly, so repeatedly in this great prayer of John 17. And we've seen throughout this study that as he opens up his prayer, he's kind of looking back and he's looking at before his incarnation, when he had the glory with the Father shared completely for all of eternity past, before he came to this earth, and he knows his mission is coming to an end. He sees ahead that all is going to be accomplished, and he says, Father, the hour has come. It's right here. The time for my restoration to you and my restoration to your glory is nigh. It's upon me. And so he's kind of looking back and looking ahead. And then he talks about the fact that he's getting ready to leave these disciples. He's going to his Father. They're staying. And so they're going to need extra protection and they're going to need empowerment because he's been the one keeping them together. He's been the one revealing the Father to them. He's been the one keeping them in the belief they have. But now he's leaving. And so he says, Father, as I come to you, I pray that you would be with them. Don't take them out of the world. I've still got work for them to do. The mission you sent me to accomplish, I've accomplished my part. Now I'm sending them out the way you sent me. Be with them. Keep them together. Keep them in you. And so he spent all this time praying for his immediate disciples, the 11 right there around him, those original disciples. And we've been able to kind of eavesdrop on that. We've been able to listen in on this incredible prayer. We've been able to to gather this great teaching that is contained in this beautiful, magnificent prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We've been listening in. But now, as we come to the end, it's as if Jesus looks right at each of you. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've at any point given your life to Him, He's your Savior and Lord, then what we're seeing as we get ready to open up and finish John 17 is we see our Savior looking forward through time, through all the years, through all the decades, through all the struggles and the strifes, through all the experiences of your life, and He's looking right at you as he starts to pray for you along with his original disciples. He brings you along with them. 
And so in my mind, I visualize Jesus and the disciples, you know, they've stopped on their road to Gethsemane. That's where all this is taking place. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane after leaving the upper room. They've been talking. And then John 17, this prayer is where Jesus just apparently stops them. He stops and he he just starts praying all these incredible things. And I visualize his hands around his disciples, you know, his hands on them as he's praying for them. But at the end of the prayer, in verses 20 through 26, where we'll be today, I just, in my mind, I visualize him stopping and, as it were, calling us over, saying, come here, come here. This is for you too. Come and, come and join in this prayer. And I don't know, I, it, it just does something for me as I think about that. Because Jesus prayed for me and he prayed for you. He prayed for every believer ever to live after the original disciples because they're the ones that proclaimed the gospel to begin with. They were sent out. They were the first to receive the Great Commission, and they went out and they proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed the truth and power of Jesus. They proclaimed who he was. They proclaimed life in his name. And as their message went out and people came to salvation in Christ, then that message was spread from them, and it just went on, and it went out in multiplication all through the world and all through the ages to where we are today. And the gospel that we believe, the gospel that you and I have received, it's the exact same gospel these followers of Christ originally proclaimed. And it just kept going out and it kept going forward. And by God's grace and by Him calling you to this gospel, giving you the faith to believe it, you now are part of what they started. And so Jesus prayed for all the believers that would ever come to him as a result of the message they were to go out and proclaim. So as we look at this and as we hear these words, know they're for you. And as you hear these words and as we look at it and we draw out from them great truths and great impact for our lives right where we are today, you do what I do. I just want to encourage you to do that. Visualize Jesus looking right at you, calling you over to this prayer circle putting his arms around you and and saying, this is for you too. My beloved, this is for you. I'm praying for you. It will take on a whole new light. It'll take on a whole new meaning, I guarantee. So let's look at this together. John 17, verse 20. Our Lord says this. I do not ask for these only. See, there it is. I'm not asking just for John and for Matthew and for Peter and for Thomas. I'm not asking for these right around me only. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Insert your name in that. Just put your name right there. Because that's what was intended. And this is what he asks for, not just those only, but for also those who believe in him through their word, for you and me. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me that they may be all one. So he had already prayed for the disciples that he was getting ready to leave to be one. He had already said that in the previous verses. He already prayed for their unity. But now he's including all believers after them 
to be joined together with them. And that all of His followers, then, shortly to come, centuries later, thousands of years later to where we are now, and after us, if He tarries, all believers, that they would all come together as one. And the degree of that, the measurement or the comparison that we should have with our unity, the way we should look at our unity and measure it up against is the very same unity that the Father and the Son have. Look at what he says there in verse 21. That they may be one just as we are one. Just as I am in you and you are in me. That's the degree of unity that we are supposed to pursue. It'd be easy for us to kind of look at ourselves and kind of measure our unity against one another and have our own humid standard and measurement of what unity should look like. But that's not what Jesus is asking for or calling us to. He's saying, you base your unity on the unity that exists between me and my Father. That's what we're supposed to look at. That's what we're to strive for. That's the kind of unity that we're supposed to have that should exemplify the body of Christ. That's how we're supposed to go about that. And I want you to also notice the purpose of of the unity that Jesus calls for, that He asks for, that He wants for all of the believers. He says, I'm asking this. I I want this to happen. I want them all to be one just as you, Father, are in me and and I in you and, and them in us mutually so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What that tells us, church, is the purpose of our unity is to point people to Jesus and the Gospel. That's the whole purpose of it. We're not supposed to be unified just because it makes things easier. We're not supposed to be unified just because it's a better way of going about church. We're not supposed to be unified um, just because we're able to then to stand up and, and say, look at us, look at us, look at how strong we are, look at how mighty we are, look at how much we can accomplish. Man, if we put our minds to it, we can do anything. I mean, there's some truth in all of those things, but that's not the main purpose for us being unified. That's not the main purpose for Jesus praying for the unity that He did. The main purpose of our unity as believers in Christ is to point people to Christ and to the gospel that we say we believe, the gospel that we say makes all the difference. Because we can say we believe, we can talk about it all day long, but until there's action behind the words, the world will not listen. And why should they? Why should they? They have enough phony promises. They have enough statements that fail to deliver. They have enough example of division and separation and brokenness and fragmentation all through their life. They don't need another example. They definitely don't need a hypocritical example. So the whole point of our unity is to point people to Jesus and to the gospel. And listen, we don't do that alone. We don't do that alone. The Christian walk was never meant to be a solo journey. The Christian walk was never meant to be a solo journey. And yet so often that's how we treat it. That's how we go about it. That's how we we live it. You know, like I'm just kind of doing my own thing. I have my own version of Christianity. You might have your own over there. Who am I to call you to any one standard? That's kind of the mentality and the philosophy, the very damaging philosophy that has crept into the church. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. And we're still called Christians, so it's all good in the end. That's not how it's intended. 
So many times we try to go at the Christian life on our own without intentionally drawing strength from one another, without intentionally seeking out one another, loving one another, being there for one another, picking each other up. That's what unity looks like. It looks like me coming alongside you, you coming alongside me, me pouring into your life, you pouring into mine, investing one another. And yeah, that's going to take work. That's going to take deliberateness. That's going to take self-sacrifice. That's going to take some being willing to stick through some mess. That means it's going to be uncomfortable at times. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But that is exactly what we're called to. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be Christian. And that's what unity actually looks like. And the purpose of all of it, while we may benefit from that, and we do, certainly, The purpose of all of it is to point to Jesus. I also want you to see that the pattern for our unity, this unity that our Savior is praying for for us, the pattern for our unity is the perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son. You see it still in that verse where he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us. So the pattern that we pursue is the unity that we find eternally existing in perfection between Father and Son. Though they are separate persons, they are still one being, one purpose, one nature, one shared list of of attributes and characteristics, one source of power, total oneness between Father and Son. And they've shared that for all of eternity, along with the Holy Spirit. And even when Jesus left heaven to come to earth and to take on a literal human body, it didn't change the fact that He and His Father were still one in complete unity, sharing in mutual glory, sharing in mutual love, sharing in mutual purpose. The Father's purpose for the Son on earth was shared by Him. It wasn't just the Father's will. The Son was submissive to and obedient to the Father's will, but it was His will too. And so we see this beautiful pattern within the divine Father and Son that should also be the way we go about things. It should mark us and define us, and and our unity should resemble the unity between the Father and the Son. And that's what Jesus is praying for. And then He goes on, verse 22. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Yeah, the repetition was on purpose. This isn't, you know, just bad printing. It's not typos or anything. This is intended. Jesus was so passionate about this. He saw this as being so important, so powerful, so necessary not to miss that he just repeated it over and over. He made sure that it was emphasized. Not because he felt like the Father didn't hear him the first time. That's not what it was. He didn't speak up or repeat it because the Father was not listening. He emphasized it to show its significance. And he emphasized it because of those around him. And he emphasized it because he knew, as being God, that one day in 20 
20, if not many times before that, you would be hearing this prayer. And that you needed to understand how absolutely vital unity truly is for you as one of his followers. That's why he repeats it again and again. And just think about that opening statement of verse 22. The glory you've given me, he's talking to his father. Here's God the Son in the flesh saying, the glory you've given me, the glory that that was Christ's for all of eternity past. There was never a time where Christ did not have glory. But he says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Just think about that. Your Savior didn't just give his life for you, believer. Your Savior shared His glory with you. The Savior shared His glory with you and with me. He called us in to be part of His own glory. Now you know yourself, and I know me. I think we could all, just about all, (laughs) safely say that we're in agreement that we don't deserve that. Like That shouldn't happen. By rights, there's nothing in me or nothing in you that should make us qualified and able to to actually experience that, the shared glory with our Savior, the Son of God. But that's exactly what He does. He gives us that glory. He shares it with us. It's just incredible. And all of this, verses 22 and 23 together, they tell us something. They tell us and they show us and they remind us that this unity that we're called to, this unity that He's praying for us about and unity that we're supposed to pursue, the power for our unity, it does not come from us. The power for our unity does not come from us. It's not something that we're going to be able to generate on our own and manufacture by ourselves. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from beyond us. It's found in the great glory that is Christ that He gives us. It's found in the union between the Father and the Son and this indwelling presence of both Father and Son that is in every believer. Christ's glory has to be the motivation, the power for our unity and the power that drives us forward to pursue this together. The motivation for that has to be Christ's glory, not our own. And it's maintained, this unity that we're called to, this supernatural unity that is far above and beyond us, it's maintained not by us, but by the indwelling union of the Father and the Son. Here's a little salvation lesson for you on the side. Most of you, I'm sure, know that when you come to Christ, you give Him your life, you ask Him to be your Savior and Lord, you surrender yourself to Him and you receive all that He is, your promise is that you receive the very Spirit of God. He indwells you at that point. At the moment of your genuine salvation, where you say no to sin and self, and you turn to Jesus and say, yes, Lord, you are the Savior I need. You're the only Savior that there is. Be my Savior. Here's my life. I give it to you. When you do that, at that very moment, the Spirit of God indwells you. But here's the really amazing, awesome part that we don't focus on enough, that we don't think about enough, but that the the Word and this prayer clearly expresses and teaches that the Savior we believe Himself clearly explains. That at the moment of belief in Christ, when you come to Him, when you become one of His followers, 
It's not just the Holy Spirit that indwells you, but through the Holy Spirit. Now, now listen, this is just so important to get. Through the Holy Spirit, you have God the Father and God the Son dwelling with you also. So to be a believer in Christ means you have the triune God dwelling in you. In just the presence of, of, the, of the Trinity doesn't just exist in heaven. It exists in you. Right? And that, that, my friends, that's, that's, our, that's our motivation. That's the motivation for pursuing unity. It's in response to the unity of the divine trinity that we are now partners with, that we are participating in. That's our motivation. And that's what maintains the unity in us. It's not something we do on our own. I want to also stress that that our unity together as believers in Christ, it's not based on agreeing about every little thing. It's not based on agreeing about every little detail. It's not based on everyone always thinking exactly the same way. And it's definitely not based on how everyone feels at the same time. There's going to be little things all the time that pop up that any two Christians aren't going to look at exactly the same way. You know, there's things on, kind of on the sides uh, of the, the main core of doctrine that, that Christians are always going to look at differently and, and think about differently and, and come up with different ideas about. So unity isn't dependent on us always 100% agreeing about 100% of, of the issues. It does mean that we have to agree 100% about the undisputable, essential doctrines and, and theological truths and pillars of Scripture. You know, there, there is a lot that we have to have absolute agreement on. I'm not saying we can just kind of open it all up and it's all up for debate and private interpretation. It's not what I'm saying. A lot of people get into trouble when they take that philosophy. But there are things that we have the liberty to look at differently. You know, and there's things in life. I mean, let's look at politics. And I know that's very dangerous waters in which to enter. But, I mean, we're in a political season. And actually, let me just, come on, when are we not in a political season, right? But we're definitely in one now. And there are thousands upon thousands of of believers, genuine believers, truly part of the body of Christ, all disciples of the same Savior, that look at political concepts, political situations, political platforms, political representatives differently. And that doesn't have to and should not affect or take away from the unity that exists between them as believers in Christ. It's entirely possible, it's entirely possible to view things like politics and other things just part of our life, part of the world, differently while still maintaining unity. So that's not what unity is based on, agreeing about every little tiny thing, every minute detail. It's not based on how everybody feels because there's never going to be a day where we all feel exactly the same, right? Emotions come and go. I mean, is there ever a day where you as an individual feel the same at the end of the day for when you woke up? 
No, of course not. Your emotions and your feelings, they're all over the place. They go all through the range of motion all throughout any given day. Our unity is not based on our emotion and how we feel toward one another. It's based on a lot more than that. It's based on and modeled after the unity always present within the triune God. That's what our unity has to be based on. That's what it has to be modeled after. The perfect eternal unity within the triune God. That again is ours because through Christ we're now partnered with and and participating in that unity within the triune God as Father, Son, and Spirit indwell us. So all that means is that it's produced supernaturally. This unity that we're hearing Jesus pray for for us and this unity that we're called to pursue and commanded to pursue all throughout Scripture. It's produced supernaturally. And it always proves what we profess. The supernatural unity that is ours in Christ and that we're called to, it will always prove what we profess. The reality of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the reality of new life in Him that we say we believe in and know and experience and want for everyone else, all that talking about those things will be backed up and validated and proved when they see us live out this supernatural unity. Because it's not possible to manufacture or generate on our own. No one out in the world is going to be able to maintain or experience the type of unity that Jesus makes possible for everyone who's in Him. It's just impossible. They're not going to know what that's like. They're not going to see it in any example in culture, in society, in their lives. We're not going to be able to see that if we try to do it on our own. The type of unity we need is going to only be found through the power of God. It's supernatural. And when we step into that, when we experience that, when we pursue it, when we live it out, that's what will make the world stand up and take notice. That's why Jesus said over and over as he's saying these statements, I pray for unity for them, Father. May they be one as we are one. He said repeatedly that the world may believe. See, that's what it's contingent on. The world's belief is contingent and dependent on the people drawn from the world into Christ, you and me, the people who are no longer part of the world system. It's dependent on us being unified together. That's what actually shows that there's something different going on. So it proves what we profess. I want you to now look at uh, verse 24 with me as this great prayer for all of us continues. Verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire, that desire, that's a strong word. Um, It it really means I, I passionately want this to happen. This is Jesus saying, I yearn for this. I'm, I'm hungering for this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's the original disciples, and you today, if you are truly a disciple of Christ, if you've followed him with your life, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about at the right hand of the Father where he's getting ready to go. He's already looking beyond the cross. He's already looking beyond the grave. He's already seeing himself restored and returned to his Father. He's already there in his own mind, in his own heart. 
in his own understanding. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To see his glory means to be able to experience it. Not just to read about it. Not just to know about it intellectually, but to personally, deeply, directly, intimately, passionately, powerfully, eternally experience it. To be right there in it. Jesus' request here, Father, let the ones you've given me be with me where I am that they may see the glory you've given me. That means let them be saturated by it. Father, I'm asking for them to be soaked up with my glory. The glory that you've given me before the foundation of the world all through your love for me. And this this is just such good, amazing news for us, believer. Because what that means is that our suffering has a glorious, glorious end. The suffering that we experience day to day in this life, in this world, And for some of you, that suffering might be great. I mean, for a lot of you, you've been through some stuff. You've walked through some major suffering, some major trial, some major hardship in your life. Maybe you're going through that right now. Maybe it's not you, but it's someone really close to you, and your heart is breaking for them. At some point, and in various ways, all of us in life will experience suffering, of some sort. That's just what it is to live in this world and in this life and to be human. It's going to happen. But the good news is, in Christ, through Him, because of, of this prayer and this prayer being answered, this particular part of the prayer, this request that we just looked at, us seeing His glory, because that's an absolute assured reality, what we can take from that is knowing that our suffering here on earth has a very glorious end. The end is not just more suffering. We come through it. We come out of it. And there's a glorious end waiting for us. Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. See, Jesus's request here gets answered with a resounding yes. Yes. The Apostle Paul also says in Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So what Jesus asked for for us, we're going to be able to know and experience and step into. We're going to be able to see and to be saturated by the full glory of Christ. And it will make all the suffering of our sojourn here on earth worth it. My grandma used to love this song, Worth It All. It was an old hymn. And I love part of what that song says. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Our trials will seem so small when we see Christ. And that's absolutely right. That's absolutely the truth. All of your loved ones who have gone on before you and left you here on earth, We miss them, we mourn for them, but we should also be celebrating for them and and just overjoyed at what they were able to step into because they were able to see the moment they stepped into eternity, yes, 
It was right. The, the scripture was right. It was worth it all. Because now I'm seeing the glory of my Savior. And I'm able to step into it and be saturated by it. And my sin will no longer separate me from it. Hallelujah. It was worth it all. And one day, we'll be able to say the same thing. We'll be able to say, oh, Jesus, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. My friends, Christ and His glory is what makes heaven, heaven. Christ and His glory is what makes heaven, heaven. If you took Christ out of the picture and His his glory out of the picture, you had all your loved ones there, and you had the streets of gold, and you had all, all the beauty that is heaven, it would cease to be heaven without Christ and without His glory. That's what makes it heaven. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus says this as he wraps up this amazing prayer right before he goes to the garden to be betrayed, to be arrested, to go to the cross. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, see, just see his his hand panning around again, panning around the disciples gathered around him, panning around throughout all time and, and forward through time, including you. But these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. We talked about that last week. That's the character and the nature of God and his power and all that that makes him him. That's wrapped up in his name. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which, don't miss this part, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Just as Jesus revealed all that the Father was to His original disciples, He continues to reveal His Father and all that His Father is to all of His current disciples. And that's going to be the same in every age until the end of all time when He comes for all of his disciples. He's going to keep revealing the Father. So I've said this before, and I say it again today. You want to know the Father? You want to know what he's like? You want to know his attributes, his characteristics? Look to Jesus. Listen to his words. Because in Jesus, you're going to find the Father. You're going to know about him. You're going to have him revealed to you. That's what Jesus does. He always reveals the Father. Always. But more than that, more than just revealing the Father... Jesus enables us to personally experience the love the Father has for Him. Just think about that. The amazing, eternal, perfect love that God the Father has for His Son, Jesus, God the Son. Because of you being in Christ, you have the same love that the Father has for Christ for you. The Father loves you exactly the same way He loves Jesus. To the degree and the measure that the Father loves the Son is the same degree and measure that He loves you. So you never have to wonder if you're loved. You never have to ask for more love from God the Father because He's never going to love you more tomorrow than He does today. And He loves you with the same just awesome love that He has for His own Son. Because before Him... You have the appearance of His Son. And before Him, you have the righteousness of His Son. And before Him, you have the blood of His Son covering you. 
which gives you the full measure of his love forever, forever. And along with that, along with revealing the Father to us, along with giving us the Father's love, along with that, he constantly gives us himself. Constantly gives us himself. Jesus' giving of himself did not stop at the cross. He constantly, moment by moment, gives of himself to you and to me. Church, true unity that we're seeing prayed for and asked for and called for for us, true unity, it goes deeper and farther than just sharing the same theology and doctrine. That's important. We need to share the same theology. We need to share the same doctrine. But true unity goes deeper than that. It goes farther than that. It's not just agreeing on a body of of explanations. It's not just having agreement on things written out on paper and intellectual truths. It's a shared passion for the glory of Jesus in everything we do. It's a shared purpose to proclaim His life-changing power to people that haven't experienced it yet. Unity is not... Please, please hear me on this. Unity is not constantly wanting control. It's not going to bring about unity when the church is full of believers vying for control and competing for control. That's not unity. Unity is not constantly wanting control. Unity is not caring more about being right than showing compassion. And we're really good at wanting to be right and showing everybody how we are. We're really good at pointing other people's faults out to them and correcting them and and showing how they're wrong in this way and wrong in that way and sitting back and judging and criticizing. We're really good at that. That comes easy. But that is not what unity looks like. Unity is not caring more about being right than showing compassion. That does not mean, church, unity is not pursuing truth. That's not what I'm saying. Stand on truth. Pursue truth. Defend truth. Know it. Proclaim it. Don't back down from the truth. That's not what I'm saying. But don't ever be more concerned about being right than showing compassion. Don't ever be more concerned about being right and showing people how you know the truth and they don't that you forget to include grace in truth. Because unity is not caring more about being right than showing compassion. Unity is not silently assassinating the character and motives of fellow Christians. Unity is not that. It's not sitting back and just silently sniping out your fellow believers because of one thing or another, what they said or, or what they didn't say or how they're dressed or how they're not dressed or what Bible version they might have or what music they might listen to and just silently assassinating their character and silently mutilating their motives when you don't really have any business to. That's not what unity is. Unity is not criticizing and critiquing from the sidelines rather than really being part of the team and actually getting in the game. It's not what unity is. In an old uh, Peanuts cartoon, I love Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown, Snoopy. And in a Peanuts cartoon, there's Lucy and Linus, poor guy. In that strip, 
Lucy comes up to him and she demands that Linus change the TV channels. She doesn't like what he's watching. So she demands that he change the channel. And she threatens him with her fist if he doesn't. And Linus says, what makes you think you can just walk right in here and take over? These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing. Individually. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which tail do you want? asks Linus. Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? My friends, individually, we're really not much. Individually, as individual believers, we really, we're not much. But when we come together, when we join together tightly as one unit, it truly is a weapon terrible to behold to the enemies of Christ. It's a weapon that's terrible to behold against all that the enemy would seek to throw at us. We're better together. We're stronger together. We're not meant to go it alone. It's what the Apostle Paul was so concerned about us getting. In his letter to the Philippians, he says this, Philippians 2, 1, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, which there is, of course, all of that in Christ. It's, you know, he's using irony. Then he gives us the prescription for unity as he follows up that. The prescription for unity. It's found in verses 2 through 4. The prescription for our unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the prescription for unity. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what he called us to. And there's proof that it's possible for human beings just like you and me. This isn't some high pie in the sky thing, some theoretical, hypothetical, philosophical thing that would be nice if it happened. Oh, wow, wouldn't that be great if it could actually work? It does work. It did work. There's proof that it works with human beings just like you and me. It's found in the early days of the church and Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 we have the record of what it looks like for the church to be unified and all that God did with that verse 42 of Acts 2 says this they speaking of the church the disciples the believers the called out ones the ones called to unity they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God, and notice this, and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
In other words, they had favor together, but because they were so unified, so together, so joined, so tightly knit as one unit, the world around them may not have agreed or believed everything they had to say, but they had favor on them. They were impacted. They couldn't help but take notice and be in awe at what they were seeing. And look at this, the result of that. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. My friends, this is not just historical information relegated to history. This is the type of unity that not only are we called to just like they were, but it's the type of unity we can experience. And it's the type of unity we must experience if we have any hope of experiencing the end result of that, those being added daily, the number of those who are being saved. If we have any hope and desire to see people added daily to the church, to the body, to this local body even, those that were being saved, what has to come first is absolute, true unity. Has to mark us. Has to define us. Has to be what we eat and sleep and drink and think and breathe. It has to be all that we are. And it starts... With leadership, we have to be unified together as the leadership of this body, those that God has called to leadership, the pastors, the the elders. It has to start with us, but it cannot be limited to us. It has to extend out to you, to our fellow believers, to the congregation. It has to extend out to you and be shared by all of us together. It has to infiltrate and filter out into all of our ministries and activities and all of our programs. Everything has to come back to the unity that is found in Christ, the unity that he prayed for for us, the unity that he is worthy of receiving from his followers, all for his glory. To help us with that, um, I've asked two gentlemen to lead us in prayer along those lines, and we'll be done after they pray. Um, but I, I, want, I want us to pray along with these men as they lead us. And let what they lead us in prayer and what you join with them in prayer as they pray, let it be our anthem. Let it be our battle cry as we go out into the world that needs to see us, desperately needs to see us living out this kind of unity that our Savior prayed for right before he went to the cross to secure for us. I've asked Cormie to pray for unity amongst the leadership of the church. And after he has prayed, Brad Farha is going to lead us in praying for unity amongst the ministries of our church and and all that we do as a church. So, gentlemen, you lead us. We'll pray along with you, and then we'll be dismissed. Okay? Cormie. Our gracious and wonderful Heavenly Father, we pause just to, to glorify you and your magnificent holy name. We want to thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for all that you've done for us through the sacrifice of your Son on the cross on our behalf. We praise you for that. We thank you, Lord, for this prayer of our Savior as he prepares to leave this earth and especially as he prays for unity among us and between us and them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for every person who has come to know Christ as Savior 
having the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit living within us to represent and to be present with us so that we can know that we are of unity with both you and our Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Lord, we also have some petitions for you, and I bring these petitions as our Savior instructed us before he left, that if we would pray in his name, that we would be filled with joy. So, Lord, we do pray in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to pray on behalf of our elders, our leadership, those under shepherds that you've appointed to care for this body, this local body, our local body. Heavenly Father, first of all, I would pray that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit being exercised, might destroy, tear down, remove any barriers that would possibly be between the individual members of our leadership body. And then, Heavenly Father, I pray that as united in love, Lord, they would come together to do the work that you have called them to, to not only be responsible for this local body, Heavenly Father, but to be an example to the local body, Lord. By the unity of our leadership, Lord, we know that that would be an example for the rest of us, Heavenly Father. And then, Lord, an example to the community around us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that no matter what the devil might attempt to do, to put wedges between our, our individual leaders, that they might draw together in Christian love, in love for you and our Savior, Heavenly Father, to administer the work of the under-shepherds that you've appointed over them. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we go forth from here, I pray that all of us will be united in spirit, in mind, in soul, in, in heart, to pray for our leadership, Heavenly Father that you would be guiding them moment by moment, that you would guide us in our prayers for them. And Lord, then let us see the results of these prayers. And we will certainly continue to praise you for that in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for preserving this prayer of our Lord so that we could see it in your word all these years later and know that not only did he pray for the men that were in his presence at the time, broken men who he came to reconcile to you, but he also prayed for us. And we know that his prayer is answered. We praise you and thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy on us. We thank you that you initiated seeking us. We did not seek you. We are not capable of coming to you on our own, but you drew us to yourself, Lord. We praise you and thank you for that, for that mercy. We thank you that 
you brought us together as a people from all different walks of life. We all have different backgrounds, yet you saw fit to bring us together here. And we just ask that you would, by your power of your spirit, give us that spirit of unity and of love for each other. Help us to love each other. Just as the disciples loved each other and their message was spread and, and to this very day, your gospel is strong in the whole world. It's changing the entire world. Because your purpose cannot be defeated by Satan. And your will will be done. So we pray that for the work that you're doing in us and through us, that you would be glorified. We pray for as we minister to each other and serve others, that others would see and recognize that it's because of you that this is happening and know the reality of the gospel. And we pray that you would use us in whatever ways you desire to help draw others to you, to point them to you as you draw them. We pray for the mission that you've given us to spread this gospel that we would truly be of one accord and one mind give us unity in spirit and love we pray in Christ's holy name